0: I know there are those who think that in the practice of preaching, uh, you can become stilted and irrelevant if you are committed to going through the Scriptures as we are. I understand that. I've heard that. But I believe that um, this exercise for us of going through Thessalonians has proved just the opposite. Certainly, while the Apostle Paul has taken us to the heights of doctrine uh, in areas such as our assurance and thoughts of the second coming of Christ, and really into the sort of the valleys of judgment and all the darkness that comes along with that, yet He has also brought us the very, very ground-level practical teaching as we've been seeing in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. This is as practical as you can get for every one of us who have struggled at times in our life with what to do in a situation where we find someone sponging off of us. Or we find someone, you know, sort of mooching or, or not carrying their weight. Someone who is constantly uh, imposing themselves on us. And we have that sinking feeling... That something's not going right. We don't always know how to deal with it. We don't always know where compassion ends and where personal responsibility begins. Well, Paul has written a section that gives us incredible insight into those kinds of matters in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, as we've been seeing. And if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you know that Paul is dealing with the issue of work in these verses particularly those who refuse to work, and all the implications that come out of that when it comes to your relationships, both within the church and outside of the church, the impact that it can have on your testimony as well as on your friendships. And so his appeal to these people who are so resistant to working, resistant to really what is the wisdom and clarity from God's Word on this issue, his, his appeal to them is the same here as it was in his first letter to Thessalonians, where he told them back then to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, and to walk properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. Very straightforward. Very clear. But by the time we reach the end of his second letter, we come to realize that while Paul has said this now a number of times, they're not receiving it. While he's reiterated this to them again and again and again, despite being delivered in the, the most clear ways, both by personal example and by repeated emphasis and exhortation, these people who are in the church, who are sort of sponging off of others, these people still are not responding. They still are imposing themselves On other believers in the church. And so Paul writes this final section of Thessalonians. Giving a series of commands. And reasons for the commands. On how you deal with these kind of stubborn sluggards in your midst. And so we're calling this little section as we've been looking at it. Paul's solution for sluggards. His solution for sluggards. But as we've said all along. uh, while While the surface issue here is the issue of of idleness or laziness or something like that, the principles that Paul lays out are applicable to really any sin. The principles that he lays out on how you deal with it are applicable to any person who becomes obstinate in their heart, resistant to the Word of God, refusing to comply, not progressing in their spiritual sanctification or whatever it might be. These solutions, however, are targeted at these sluggards. And he begins, you'll notice in verse 6, we talked about for with the demand for separation. We command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not according to the tradition you received from us. This is Paul calling for separation from the church for these people who have received so many opportunities to repent so many warnings to do the right thing and we laid this out last time the kind of progression that 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 this has followed over about a year's time with Paul and with the church it started when he was with them and he was working among them and giving them an example and and as he says here saying to them even at that time that they need to be working it followed up with a letter that he wrote to them. It was, it was coordinated with efforts from the Thessalonians themselves where Paul calls on them to be involved. And now finally, after all of this time, they're still unresponsive. And so Paul has to finally urge the church to deal with this by publicly separating from them. And this isn't just some sort of socially awkward position. This is church discipline. The formal removal from membership or from church body life, however you want to think about it. The formal removal of these people from the regular interaction with the body of Christ. Paul would never tolerate someone to be included in the life of the church and yet be treated this way. There's no way that he would ever envision you ostracizing someone within the fellowship. So for him to say separate from them is very clearly a reference to the issue of discipline. As we said in past weeks, by the time it reached this point though, the issue of their work ethic has kind of taken back seat now to what is the primary issue. And that is their refusal to be corrected and to be guided by the Word of God. Their unwillingness to to hear what God's Word says and to act accordingly. Paul understands there's an obstinacy here that will not be contained to just this one sin, just this issue of their work ethic. He knows that the kind of attitude they're developing towards God's Word will spread into other areas of their life and it will infect the lives of of others within the congregation, so for the protection of the witness of the body of Christ, he calls for separation. That's his solution to begin with, but it's not the only solution. It's not the. It's not uh, the only answer. Really, long before they ever even get to this point, there were other avenues, there were other options, there were other solutions that had been presented to these sluggards. And that's what Paul begins to deal with in verse 7. He, he really kind of names the, the ultimate solution there, but then he gives the reasons why they have reached that point. And, and in doing that, he looks into the past and begins to recount some of the other solutions that have already been put forward and have already been rejected by these guys. Which includes, number two, the display of Paul for imitation. He says, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. This is the reason, Paul says, ultimately, why you have to separate at this point. Because all the way back to the time I was with you, we were making these things plain. We were pointing these things out to these sluggards early on, and Paul basically did that by choosing when he was among them to work as a tent maker, which isn't normal for a pastor to do. That's not God's pattern. According to Paul in other places, that's not the way God designs it. And he even references it here in verse 9. It's not because he doesn't have a right to expect it of them. But he chose to forego the right for two reasons. First of all, he didn't want to burden them, because as we saw in Second Corinthians chapter 8... They, as Macedonians, were extremely, extremely poor. Paul knew that, and because of their extreme poverty, he would not put an undue burden on any of them to try to support him and his colleagues. And so, as he, as he indicates in Philippians chapter 4, he called for, or at least he took support from the Philippians while he was in Thessalonica, so that he wouldn't have to burden them. He supplemented that gift or those gifts that came from the Philippians by also working with his own hands. And the combination of the financial support from Philippi and what he was able to cobble together by his own work, Paul was able to meet all of his needs and the needs of those who were, excuse me, who were with him. We also know from Acts 17 that he stayed apparently in the house while he was in Thessalonica with a man named Jason. So, his housing was somewhat taken care of. Uh, whether he paid rent, we don't know or not. But the indication is that Paul wanted to do whatever he could not to put a financial burden on this not only young and and uh, immature church, but this incredibly impoverished church. But he had a second reason, maybe a more driving reason, and it's because... He wanted to give them an example, as he says a couple of times here, an an example for them to imitate. Paul, perhaps when he was with them, he saw not only their poverty, he might have even made a connection between their poverty and some problem with their work ethic. Whatever it was, it inspired Paul to want to give them something to emulate, something to demonstrate to them the value and the virtue of work, to uphold it in their eyes as something that is noble. I mean, if Paul had an automobile, he wouldn't be one of those people putting a bumper sticker that says, I'd rather be fishing or I'd rather be, you know, whatever, snowboarding or whatever. That's not Paul. That's not the way he viewed his life. He didn't view his life as as work somehow getting in the way of his leisure or somehow getting in the way of what he would really rather be doing. He had a very robust, a very sound understanding of why he was created, what he was created for, and the desire to be productive in some task. Just as the Lord has called all of us to do. He's given us responsibilities, he's given us tasks and that doesn't just include what you're paid to do. Someone asked me last week, you know, well, I'm hearing what you're saying, but how do you balance all that between work and family and all the hours that you have to put in all these? how do you balance all that? Well, you have to understand that that your labor, your work isn't just what the Lord gave you to be paid to do. You have tasks. Various tasks, some of them have to do with what you do at your place of employment, some of them have to do with what you do at home. Both of them, all of them, whether it's ministry included, all of them have certain responsibilities that you must fulfill with the proper level of devotion, the proper level of excellence, the proper level of sacrifice. The Lord didn't put you here for a life of ease. He didn't put you here for a life of leisure. He put you here to fulfill these tasks. And so Paul wanted to give them that example. And so what did he do? He did a little bit of work with his own hands, tent making to make an income. And whenever he did enough of that in order to survive, he left that and he went and he put a little bit of work into Preaching and teaching and discipling and ministering within the body of Christ. If Paul had a family, I'm sure he would have done the very same thing. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. How that having a family necessarily pulls you away from certain responsibilities of ministry. And that's right and that's good. You need to do that. But you have to understand that all of those things are things which have been assigned to you by the Lord. And you can't cheat one for the other. You have to approach all of them with the same level of diligence. Well, this is what Paul laid out for them. He didn't want to shirk his responsibility. He didn't want them shirking their responsibility. So he set an example for them. In verse 10, he hearkens back to that time as well when he was with them, giving him a third solution for the sluggard, which is pretty straightforward. It's the denial of, of compensation, the denial of compensation, even when we were with you, he says, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. It's really remarkable, if you think about it, that Paul would even need to say that. That he would even need to clarify for them That if someone is expecting to eat, they ought to work. That there is, as we say sometimes, there is no free lunch. It must have been bad when Paul arrived. It must have been really awful in the church because he could actually recall giving them this explicit teaching. This wasn't just sort of some passing comment. He remembered having to tell them this. He had seen the issue he understood what the scripture said. He understood that those who are slothful, it's not a problem of their ability. It's not a problem of their opportunities. It's a problem of their attitude. As we said last time, the Proverbs 26, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer Sensibly, This is a difficulty with a sluggard. You can't reason with them. You try to talk to them about the problem and they come up with all kinds of excuses. There's a lion in the streets, as the proverb says, coming out of the mouth of the sluggard. This is the issue. You can hardly talk to the lazy person about their ways because they're always dodging. They're always seeing themselves as the special case. They're always suggesting that the rules that apply to you or to others don't apply to them. And the bottom line is they just look at themselves as wiser than seven men who can give a reasonable answer. And so they don't work. And yet they still desire all the things that come to those who work. Proverbs 20, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn, yet he will seek in the harvest. Proverbs 13, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. These are people who have million-dollar dreams, but minimal, minimal wage work ethic, right? I mean, they want to they have all the things they see everyone is having, but they don't want to put in really the kind of sacrifice and effort. And Paul understood that this was contrary to the Word of God. To feed off of the kindness of others. And so his solution? Don't perpetuate the problem. Don't perpetuate the problem. Resist the urge to fall into their sort of shifty ways. Don't make excuses for them. Cut off, cut off the benevolence. If they're not willing to work. Paul understood. I'm sure that particularly when it comes to even the church. People can be so undiscerning. About these kinds of things. So driven by nothing but pure emotion. He understood that. that people have difficulty. Comprehending what compassion. Is supposed to look like. And so they become Enablers. Their their emotional connection to the sluggard allows them to be manipulated by false guilt. They probably have a a sense in in their heart of growing resentment toward the slothful. They don't really know how to express their emotions and their thoughts. Uh, They're afraid to, to say something because they know it'll get the kind of reaction it's going to get. And so what they do is they just bury all that stuff. And they just allow themselves to be continually abused and manipulated. They confuse convenience with compassion it's convenient for them not to address the issue it's convenient for them not to have the difficult conversation and so they just sit back and allow the slacker to take advantage of them over and over again until they finally become so cynical so hardened the relationship is destroyed from within Paul doesn't want that to happen he doesn't want that to happen. So he tells them in very clear terms look, if they don't work, they don't eat. He'll tell them, by the way, down in verse 13 don't, don't grow weary in well doing. Don't let this cause you to, to pull away from genuine compassion. Just understand the basic biblical principle. He gives them another solution in verses 11 and 12. When he begins to talk about the danger of agitation. He knows the the potential of this growing resentment. He knows also the potential of these people. Who have such an attitude in their heart against the word of God. They don't want to be conformed to it. And yet giving them so much free time. Is going to create problems. Problems. Paul begins to tell us here, by the way, why all this came up. Why it was such a big issue. Because he had received a report. He had heard what was going on, he says in verse 11. He said, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now the ESV, English Standard Version, if you have it, has that phrase, some among you walk in idleness. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. The word really is not idleness. The word is unruly or out of line or out of order. It takes the word for order and it, it puts the negative part, uh, uh, particle on the front of it so it becomes unorderly or unruly or disorderly. There are some of you who are walking in a disorderly fashion. They were disruptive. They were disorderly. And the rest of the verse really defines the way that was working out. On one hand, they were not working. That certainly identifies part of the problem. They were idle. They were lazy. They were slothful. But on the other hand, they were also becoming busybodies. They were becoming meddlers. And these two things so often go hand in hand because when you have people who have time on their hands, when you have people who have what we might say nothing to occupy their interest, then they have nothing better to do but to go and stir up things that are interesting to them. And so they use their free time to actually gain access to situations. Into which they have not been invited, sometimes it's actually those who show them kindness and generosity that they sort of latch onto or attach themselves to and begin interfering in their life. The lazy person, the slothful person, actually begins to believe that in return for this generosity, that they're going to offer their profound wisdom to help you serve, solve all your problems. The ancient Greek philosopher Theophastus, he writes, in the proffered services of the busybody, there is much affection of kindheartedness, but very little efficient aid. Even back then, the same thing. Things never change. This is part of the pride of the sluggard. He or she actually presumes That they are something of an expert, an advisor in the lives of others. That they actually have some sort of insight to offer to nearly everyone about nearly everything. Even though they have barely accomplished anything in their life. They don't know anything about what you do. They don't know anything about what your issues are. And yet there they are, all the time, meddling trying to sort out your problems with what they imagine to be their superior wisdom. They're wiser than everyone else. They imagine that their thoughts on the matters and the affairs of everyone are more useful than if they actually went out and just did some job well. They're too busy. They're too valuable. You know, it's sort of in the in this sphere of relationships, their work is, is in their minds to go out and to dig up whatever kind of turmoil they can, to ask whatever kind of probing questions they can, to try to needle in behind whatever they feel like is the facade, to try to get behind whatever they feel like are, are the, um, the fronts that people put up and try to find out what the real issues are and try to get in and solve it. That's what they think their job is. And so instead of making themselves useful to some task, they use their free time to access more and more people, to collect more and more details about more and more lives, to spread, to spread information like gossips. I, I mean, I, I have people sometimes ask me in the day, age of social media, they'll ask me all the time, you know, did you read this? Did you see that tweet? Did you read that on Instagram? And I just have to tell, honestly, I don't have the time. I don't. I don't have the time to sit and and peruse that stuff. I just have a lot of stuff to be doing. And I can imagine if I did have the time, then probably I would sit there and read all that stuff and I would get really worked up about it and I'd start talking about it. But guess what? Nothing would get accomplished. Well, in the age before social media, these people just, they did the same thing. They just had to go house to house to do it. The old way. Paul talks about it in First in, in Timothy chapter 5. These young widows who, who requested to be placed on financial support by the church because they had lost their husbands. And Paul warned the church not to do it. He says, because what they will do, he says, is they will take advantage of the benevolence of the church. And rather than using their free time to be productive in ministry, they, he says, will become busybodies. They'll become gossips. Same thing was happening in Thessalonica. It wasn't just widows, though. These were these obstinate slackers who would not take correction. And didn't really, really want to grow in their usefulness to the Lord. And so Paul tells them in verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, he brings those things together. It's not only a command, it's an encouragement. He kind of stacks those things up. Doubling them up for emphasis. And then he adds the solemn title in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in, in the Lord Jesus Christ I should say. So that they understand the seriousness of what he's about to say. And he says, so we give them this command and we give them this encouragement. First of all, they need to do their work quietly. Which implies a kind of humility in your labor. Without any fanfare, without putting yourself out there. This was actually a word that was used to describe... People in dramas and plays who had secondary roles. The ancient Greeks would use this word to tell them how to not overplay their role, to try to pander for the spotlight when the spotlight's not supposed to be on you. So Paul is saying, look, you need to go out there and you need to just quietly go about doing something. In modern terms, we might say it's something like this. Let your work speak for itself. Let your work speak for itself. Instead of idling away your time and daydreaming about all the things that you wish you could do or instead of going around and telling all the people all the things you know about everything that you've never done, Just yapping all the time and people not really wanting to listen to you, but you coming in again and again and again. Paul says, Look, just put your head down and do your work quietly. That's his first command and his first exhortation. And then, secondly, earn your own living. Or literally, it says, eat your own bread. Develop a kind of self-sufficiency. A kind of self-sufficiency. He's not ruling out, by the way, socialization. He's not saying you can't go to someone else's house and accept a a meal from them. He's not saying that you can't even receive a gift from someone from time to time as an act of kindness. That's not what he's talking about. But what he's talking about is self-sufficiency. Go out there and to the best of your ability, do what is necessary to provide for your own. You know what Paul says in, in Timothy? If a man doesn't provide for his own household. He's what? Worse than an unbeliever. Let that sink into your head for just a second. If you don't provide for those in your own household. And, and there Paul's talking about not just your wife and your kids. He's talking about your parents. If you don't provide for even them. In their Need You're worse than an unbeliever. I meaning you're a hypocrite. You're just a, you're just a pseudo follower of Christ. You don't understand what sacrifice and service to other people is. You don't understand the meaning of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says it's better to give than to receive. Earn your own living. Eat your own bread. None of this, of course, when Paul says any of these things, he's not talking about people who have lost their job for whatever reason. They're out there, they're looking, they're trying to find something. They want to provide for their family, but there aren't any opportunities. I've been through that. I remember that. I went through several months where I had lost my job and I was looking for something and we were worried about the bills and I was going to the temp agencies and getting whatever kind of work I could. I remember those Difficult, difficult days. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about people who are refusing to work. He's not even talking about people who are disabled. People who uh, would never deny a, a good opportunity if it came their way, but they just simply aren't able In fact, I think every disabled person I've ever known is constantly looking for more ways to help. They want to be involved as much as they possibly can. They want to contribute. They're not looking to avoid work. They'll do, if possible, anything they can if you ask them to. He's not even really talking about people who are underemployed. That is to say, they're putting in the number of hours each week, but because of various reasons, because of a, uh, maybe a lack of training, because of being maybe not in their skill set, or because of just simple oppression and abuse by their employers, they are not making a living income, a living wage. Paul's not even talking about those people. He's talking about those, those ones who... Simply are refusing to work. Looking for a life of ease. But without the commitment to sacrifice. And it comes down to their attitude. Are they willing to inconvenience themselves to do what is right? Or are they just simply looking to inconvenience everyone else? This is really... This is really Paul's call to all of them to do what is right. And yet, saying all of those things, he still has the reminder in verse 13, which is really a fifth solution for the sluggard, a reminder that we have to keep in mind in verse 13. And while you don't want to be an enabler for slothful habits, you, you don't want to let your frustrations either cause you to pull back from helping The helpless. Don't let it cause you to be cynical when it comes to compassion. And so Paul says in verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't let their ways cause you to pull back from those who genuinely are in need. Because while some people will take advantage of your kindness... Or they may try to freeload off of others. You can't forget what the Scripture repeatedly calls you to in terms of kindness and compassion toward the poor. I mean, the very same Proverbs that talk about the danger of the sluggard over and over and over again also tell us in Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deeds. Proverbs 21.13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Proverbs 14.21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. And you could just stack up verses like that from Proverbs, from Psalms, from, from the prophets in the Old Testament, or even Jesus' teaching. Luke 14, whenever you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends, or your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repay you. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Or even the Apostle Paul when he in Acts chapter 20 was talking to the Ephesian elders and he tells them he says in everything I showed you that by working hard you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that he himself said it is more blessed to give that rather than to receive. Titus 3, 14, learn to be engaged in good deeds, meeting pressing needs so that you will not be unfruitful. First on, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Paul understood this stuff. He understood that certainly That at the core of your Christianity, true and undefiled religion is caring for the widows and the orphans in need. Caring for those who are poor and destitute. He understood this. That God honors that kind of graciousness. That while He resists the proud, He exalts the humble in this regard. Scripture says, gives all of these admonitions not so that you will prop up slothfulness and laziness. It gives these admonitions because it recognizes that poverty is not always the result of laziness. Many times it is the result of oppression. People taking advantage of other people. Overcharging them, underpaying them. Hitting them with some ridiculous fine or cheating them in some way. And so you can't just assume that because someone is in some place of hardship that you're not in, that it's because you worked hard and they didn't. They might be a single parent doing everything they can, doing double duty as as provider and as nurturer in the home and they come home and they try to get their kids to whatever events they can and try to help them with their homework and then the next morning they're off early in the morning just trying to, to hold down whatever they can in terms of jobs and, and employment and income. They couldn't take a second job if they wanted to because of what they have on their plate. You have to be compassionate. You have to be mindful of these kinds of opportunities. And so Paul says don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in doing those things. You give to the poor. You are lending to the Lord. Guess what? You'll be paid back. You give to those kinds of needs. God will not forget you. You put your faith to action in that way. The Lord's going to let you see a fruit from that. But for those who have the ability, for those who have opportunity, for those who have heard over and over again what God's Word calls them to in terms of work, if if they, on the other hand, are insistent on just freeloading off of you, don't enable them. Don't enable them. Their issues, you understand, are worse than poverty they have a hardened heart against the word of god and so in verse 14 paul reminds them of their duty to deal with it and here he reminds them of the design of isolation the design of isolation he's already talked to them about separation back in verse 6 that that has more to do with protecting the congregation that has more to do with protecting you From the subtle influences from them. But here his approach is. God's design for this separation. In their life. That they would Lord willing feel. Isolated. They're intended to feel isolated. And it will create a significant consequence. Which is shame. Paul says in verse 14, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him so that he might be ashamed. Now, very few things are more taboo in in today's culture than this. The idea of shaming someone. Modern America, modern Western society suffers from a fear of judging. They have gravely misunderstood the, the warnings of Jesus about hypocritical judgment in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, judge not lest you be judged and with the same measure you judge others, you should be measuring yourself. They, they hear that and they assume it means making no judgments. And so in today's society, passing judgment on the behavior of a fellow human being is associated with sort of a, a, a return to medieval oppression and, and undemocratic intolerance or, or dictatorial leadership or whatever it might be. And so the popular way of thinking tells you that you don't have a right to do that. You who have so many flaws you have no way of pointing out or you have no right of pointing out the flaws in other people. On top of that, more and more people are questioning whether or not there's even such a thing as a moral standard that all of us have to adhere to anyway. Everyone, every man's way is right. You add to that the growing sensitivity of the psychological effect of shame In our culture and particularly with the advent of social shaming on social media. And so now the person who experiences shame is almost universally looked at as the victim. And we certainly recognize that people use shame as a tool of individual manipulation. That's a problem. It's a problem within families. It's a problem within businesses. It's a problem in society. And we also recognize that there are people who make rash judgments about others without taking the time to understand them. Without gathering facts and data, they just resort to some sort of public shaming. We understand the injustice of that. But none of that is what Paul has in mind. None of that is what he has in mind. What he has in mind is actually restoring a proper sense of shame where it has been lost. For people who are actually doing something that is shameful but have lost uh, sight of what they're doing as being that terribly wrong, Paul is asking the church to go through this patient and yet deliberate process of, of diving in and uncovering all the facts, giving people Adequate warnings over and over again. Giving them time to respond to God's word. And if after all of those things. They're still unwilling to obey the commands of scripture. Then there are very few tools you have remaining. To help them to see how dangerous is the pathway that they're on. In those kinds of extreme situations. Paul commands the church to use isolation. Isolation. With the intent That the person who's isolated will finally feel and sense the shame of what they have done. That the reason they're in the position that they're in, first of all, is because they have done, they have behaved in shameful ways. And secondly, that if they're unable to feel the proper sense of shame about what they've done, that they can't properly understand that uh, their mind has been poisoned and their conscience has been defiled, that they're no longer responding to the clear teaching of God's Word as they ought, that they would have time to reflect on that. And so Paul appeals to them, take special note. That is to publicly mark someone, publicly mark this person And keep your eye on them so as not to associate with them. Obviously bringing the social pressure of isolation. Push them with this. Push them. Avoid them in order to put shame on them. Now that's distasteful. I I admit, I mean, no one enjoys this. I mean, you reach this point because everything has been distasteful up to this point. But this matches the distastefulness of their behavior. Let them feel the shame of how they've been behaving. The Greek word is actually a word to look at yourself. That's really what shame is all about. Shame is an intense focus and scrutiny on your own behavior so that you actually begin to look at it close up with all of its flaws and with all of its imperfections so it begins to bother you. I remember finishing the floor in my house one time and I got the big drum sander and like I knew what I was doing and I drug that thing back and forth across the, across the floor and kind of, you know, dug up all, the, all the, um, the, the coating, all the varnish and everything was on the floor and so we could put down new stuff and we came back with a new clear coat and all that other stuff. And I remember I would sit in my chair every day and my, my family was probably watching the TV or talking. You know what I was looking at? I was looking at the floor And all the dimples and all the imperfections and all the... And I just couldn't... I couldn't enjoy my living room anymore. All this work to enjoy my living room and I couldn't enjoy it anymore. Well, this is what they're supposed to do. They've kind of enjoyed their sin for a while... They've kind of enjoyed the pathway they're on. They thought it was the solution. They thought it was the answer, but you press them to the point that they actually begin to stop for a moment and take a closer look at what they've been doing, hopefully with the result that they begin to notice the flaws that they didn't see before. They see the imperfections. They see the sin that before wasn't obvious to them anymore. And so you isolate them, you push them out so that they feel that, so that they begin to do that and sense that. They finally stop in their mind from the anger that drove them or the selfishness that drove them or the moral insanity that drove them. And they actually soberly ponder what they've done. And for people who are willing to follow the Lord's wisdom in this, this process has its proper effect. It might take months. It could, in some cases, take years. But people begin to feel the sting of the isolation. Don't be naive. You'll have to endure the pain of accusation. You will be accused of being unloving. You'll be accused of abandoning kindness. You'll be accused of... of, You know, not forgiving. You'll be accused of all kinds of things. Don't be naive. You will hear those kinds of things. But eventually, emotions will die down and people will actually be forced to take a closer look at what they've done. And this is God's design. This is exactly the way He designed it. To bring them back to the place where they should have been. To restore the sense of shame for what they've done. The sense of shame that's been lost. And all that takes us to Paul's final point, which is his seventh solution for the sluggard. Which is the desire for restoration. This is really just the other side of the coin for his sixth solution. It goes hand in hand with the first one, the separation. And the sixth one, the isolation. And it's all intended to lead to restoration. I mean, none of this is for the sake of pure cruelty. None of it is just to make people suffer. It's never done out of a sense of hatred or a lack of love. It's always done with a sense of brokenness, always with a desire to see the person restored. And so Paul says, even when you isolate these people, do not regard them as an enemy, he says in verse 15, but warn him as a brother. You must be clear in your mind. You're not attacking this person. That's not why you're doing this. You're not wishing evil on this person. Your heart, in fact, is full of love and full of compassion. I know people who have been disciplined out of this church that I still pray for to this day. Because my heart is still broken and still loving for them. And yet, in spite of that love, you no longer ignore their sin. You no longer pretend like they are behaving in a way that is appropriate. So when you see them, you don't necessarily display social rudeness, but you also can't make a show like everything's okay. You're not cold. You're not unfriendly. You're not unkind. You don't treat them like an enemy. You don't come across as hostile. You don't want to do anything but that. What you really want to do is woo them. You want to woo them back to a place where they need to be in their walk with the Lord and in their fellowship with the church. It's purposeful. Your interaction with them is purposeful. It's not casual. You're not just pretending to be unmindful of their behavior. You're not just pretending like things never happen. You see each opportunity with them whether it is just out in the normal course of you know social life or whether it is in your job or wherever you might interact with them you look at those as intentional purposeful opportunities if you fail to do that then what you're doing is just enabling you're continuing to shield them from the sense of shame that they ought to feel and you're failing to love them the way they need to be loved To help them grow out of the dangerous pathway they have begun to follow. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? Galatians 6, if anyone's caught, ensnared, in a trespass, you restore them with gentleness, looking to yourself lest you also be tempted. You walk with humility and gentleness even as you deal with them. No matter what the sin is, the solutions are very similar. In this situation, it was slothfulness. In this situation, it was idleness and laziness and meddlers, disruptive people. In other situations, it might be something else. It could be sexual sin. It could be gossiping, it could be divisiveness, it could be doctrinal, it could be all kinds of things. Whatever it is, the solution's the same. The solution is the gentle love of the gospel. Talking, pleading, warning, exemplifying godliness in front of people. But eventually, if necessary, for the sake of the health of the church, for the sake of the purity of the gospel witness and for the sake of this beloved brother or sister the painful process of isolation but all of it works towards the same goal for which the Lord has called us redemption restoration fellowship reunion around the pure love of the Lord and the pure confession of love for one another Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, your teaching is plain in this matter. Scriptures is clear. And we confess that these are difficult things for us to do in a culture that increasingly looks at those who are abusing others as victims. It's still our job to call them out to point out their sin and to help them to see the shame of their way. I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to do that. And yet even in that endeavor, Lord, give us the compassion and kindness to deal with them not as enemies but as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, where we have in our hearts any kind of resistance to the word of God, guard us and keep us that it would never reach this point with us that we would hear your warnings, that we would hear your admonitions, that we would turn from our pathway, that we would feel in our own selves a sense of shame where we need to feel it and quickly find the sense of grace from the cross of Christ and your forgiveness. We love you, Lord, that you are restoring God, that you are reconciling God, that you are forgiving God. And I pray that that message would penetrate into the hearts of each and every one of us that we might walk in peace with you and with one another. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.